Good morning, everyone. To begin our time together today, we are going to be reading a passage from Isaiah 50. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. So Isaiah 50, we're going to begin in verse 4. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me, therefore I have not been humiliated, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Thanks, Ellie. Good morning, guys. Again. Um, I asked Ellie to read that passage over us this morning. And it's such a powerful text um, to see the words of Christ being spoken in the, the book of Isaiah. And we'll reference this in a little while, but I'm going to read it again. And not because Ellie didn't do a great job. I actually want to hear this again before we start. So if you still have your Bibles there, let me, let me read this passage one more time because I, I feel like I need to hear it. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Very powerful words when you think of Jesus going to Jerusalem towards the end of his ministry, what he would endure there and what he would face. And the part of that passage that I wanted us to really grab hold of is the father waking him up in the morning. The father drawing the son to himself and the son responding in his physical life. When you think of the word radical, what do you think of? It's probably not where it came from. It's probably a more modern translation of what we would think radical to mean. Is it something like catching a sick wave when you were surfing? For all you surfers. Maybe it's jumping out of an airplane. That's a pretty radical thing to do, wouldn't you say? Maybe it's how you show love for your favorite sports team. I don't know. What do you think of when you use the word rad anymore? It's not really heard very much. Something obvious, measurable, something shareable on social media? Not something boring. Fascinatingly, did you know that all those are not the definition of the word according to its root in Latin? If you look at radicalis in Latin, it means roots. It comes from the word root. Radical is literally speaking of the invisible part of a plant that gives it strength and life. It's below the surface. It's unseen. 
Sky Jatani described its true meaning for Christians this way. He said, the truly radical Christian is not the one whose life appears extraordinary, but the one whose unseen communion with God is extraordinary. Living radically is about prayer, not prominence. Living radical is about prayer, not prominence. For the first time in Mark's gospel account, he records Jesus praying. We'll see this this morning as we look at it in Mark chapter 1. And after this amazing day of ministry where Jesus calls four fishermen to begin his discipleship course, and then he preaches in the synagogue at Capernaum with authority so clearly seen because of his sincerity. We talked about this last week. It was the right words from a righteous man. He casts a demon out of a man who enters the synagogue, and then he goes to Peter's house, and he heals his mother-in-law. And then that evening, Jesus closes out this extraordinary day. As Sabbath ends and the sun sets, the people in the village start bringing the sick and the possessed people to him. And he dispossesses the demons and he starts healing the sick people right there at the door. And lo and behold, the man that these fishermen invited to their home has become the host. Now he's at the doorstep. Now Jesus is the one who's doing the work. You wouldn't be surprised, I don't think unless you've read ahead and cheated like I have, you wouldn't be surprised to find Jesus sleeping in Sunday morning, would you? Taking a little bit of extra rest. Wow, I could really use a nap right about now, right? Those are some of my favorite words. They weren't when I was like 20. I remember my dad going in like, oh, I just need a nap. I'm like, what's the matter with you? There's so much wisdom there. So much wisdom in needing a nap. All the guys are like, oh, yes, Lord. Preach. But we don't find Jesus the next morning after this incredible day of ministry that undoubtedly went late into the night. We don't find him sleeping in. Instead, let's take a closer look at what Jesus does the following day. Mark chapter 1, picking up in verse 35, we read this. Very, very early in the morning. That extra very was me. While it was still dark, he got up. He went out and made his way to a deserted place. And there... He was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages. But let's go there too. This is why I've come. We're going to go first, stop there. Let's stop there and just notice what Jesus does at the beginning of this new day. If I want to depress my children, I use the term very early. If I want to upset them, if I want to have their, their energy drained, if I want them to not be interested in what I'm doing, I'll use the terminology very early in the morning. Because even for an exciting event, my kids are not very willing very early in the morning. Few things will express the air from their lungs so effectively as when I say, okay, we're getting up early. Oh, wow. It's like, don't worry, I, don't, I know you won't be conscious, but I just want your bodies moving. That's all I need. Why is that? Why is it that, that very early in the morning for many of us is like the worst thing to hear? You know, what's the thing that you don't want to hear your spouse say? Don't forget, we have to get up early. Oh, why? Why? It's because physical fatigue is real. And all the morning people are like, what's the matter with you guys? I'm up at 4 a.m. Sickos. 
You guys, physical fatigue is for, that's because, sorry, hold on, let me go back real quick. That's because you were in bed at six. All right, that's why you got up so early. It's not because you actually like getting up early. It's because your life cycle is wrong. All right, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I'm going to get in trouble for this. Don't yell that. I'm setting myself up for email. All right. Guys, physical fatigue is real. We experience physical fatigue in this life, and it takes discipline to rise early after a long day. When you've, if you had done half what Jesus had done in this day, you would want to stay in bed longer. But you guys, what drives Jesus is that radicalis. It's that deep-rooted desire to be with the Father. It's that deep-rooted understanding that what's necessary is not rest in this moment. It's prayer. It's to be with the Father. Oh, there's seasons of rest. But when we're doing ministry, how many times do we find ourselves lacking power, not because we, don't, we haven't slept enough, but because we haven't prayed enough? So many times we're lacking power in our lives because we're not spending time in prayer. You guys, I love that we're praying together weekly here at the church, not just in service, but setting aside time on Sunday mornings to pray together as a church. And I want to encourage you guys, please come pray because the power of the church is begun in prayer. It starts there. That is the radicalis. That is the root. We need to be a church that prays together. It's that unseen communion with God that spiritually fuels the tasks of the day. It'll even fuel our physical bodies, I believe, because we're becoming dependent on the Lord to do what is necessary. Make no mistake, Jesus was undoubtedly tired. He was tired. He was fatigued. However, very early, and that being in between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m., that hour that causes children to shudder, he shows discipline and dedication by not only getting up to pray. He doesn't just go into that room of the house that's semi-quiet. He went out and made his way to a deserted place. Jesus found a quiet place that was out of the way, out of town. It wasn't in town. That word for deserted is eremos. Fascinating word because it's been used twice already in this chapter, but it's translated differently. If you look at Mark, and we'll have this up on the screen... Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says this, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. You could probably guess what word is translated both wilderness and deserted. Eremos. These words are the same. Fascinating for me, because it's not the same location, but it's the same setting. It's not the same geographical location, but the setting is the same as when Jesus was tempted and as where he goes to find communion with the Father. It's sought out this time by Jesus. The first time the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. This time Jesus seeks out a deserted place. He seeks out a place where he's by himself. And it's not this time for temptation at the hands of the enemy. This time it's for communion. With his father in both situations god is honored because the heart of christ is pure and submitted to the father's purposes he can go into the eremos and experience temptation and have victory there because he's relying on the spirit and he's relying on his father he can also in that same setting experience great communion with god in prayer 
It's all about where the heart of Christ was at this time. What kind of wilderness? This is the question we have to figure out. What kind of wilderness has the Spirit led us into? What kind of wilderness do we seek out? Have you trusted in him to give you victory against the temptation of the enemy? And having won that victory, do we view that deserted place in our lives differently? Do we view it as a setting now for prayer? As a setting to stand and remember the faithfulness of God and call upon him for fresh strength? Do we view the valleys of our lives as ways to be close to him? rather than a place that we avoid going to at all cost. How many times do I avoid going to places at all cost because I had a bad experience? It's interesting, isn't it? Is that wilderness of struggle a place where we find a deep communion now with the Father in the midst of fatigue and busyness? Do we see the times that we went through great temptation as ways for the Lord to have great victory? And do we also see that in those times, in that wilderness of struggle and difficulty, that the Father meets us there? That he waits for us there? Church, oh, that we would see the low points, the difficulties, the deserted places for what they truly are. They're opportunities. There are opportunities for the Lord to have victory and for intimacy and communion with God. Locations that produce opportunity for prayer that are sincere and they're deep. Prayer that fuels us for what God's calling us to next. Jesus here, our greatest example. Looking at him and watching his every move, we see he lived a life of relationship with God that every one of us can live. We can get up very early in the morning and seek the Father in prayer. And some people are like, that's not my style. It's not my style either. It doesn't fit real well. It's a discipline. It's a discipline that we ought to take note of in the life of Christ. I want to be disciplined like him to prayer. Because I see that it's the root of everything that happens in my life. He lights the pathway to true fellowship with the Father and it leaves Simon in a place of panic. Notice this, Simon and his companions in the verse that follows. Kind of gives si uh, Peter, Simon Peter, this leadership role amongst the guys. He's kind of instigating this. And he says, Simon and his companions searched for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you, including themselves. Right? There's a desperation in the reading of these verses. The word searched for literally means to hunt down. They're looking for him earnestly. Where's Jesus? We lost him, right? Got to find him. Got to find him right now, right? It's eager. Find him. What's interesting is the townsfolk of Capernaum are most likely looking for Jesus because they want to see more miracles. They want him to do more things for them. But the eagerness of these guys looking for Jesus early is a hunger. Remember, when he called them on the side of the lake the day prior, as he had worked in their lives, he had known them for some time. That wasn't their initial meeting. I believe the disciples were looking for Jesus for another reason. I think they wanted to be close to him. I don't think they wanted him to be far from them, and I think that's admirable. I think that's the heart that we ought to have. The townsfolk, they're looking for Jesus, and after a day of ministry like the one he had prior, it's not unexpected that they would be wanting to see where he is and be a part of whatever he's going to do, because it was pretty powerful. 
Perhaps they want to hear more of his teaching, but more likely they want to see miracles and dispossession. Notice, notice this about Jesus, however. How good are we at being interrupted? How good are you guys at being interrupted? Do you like to be interrupted? Especially when you're busy? Especially when you purposefully sought out a quiet place to be alone? Okay, kids, I want you to test this on your mom. No, go f- and be like, I'm just kidding, don't do it. <laughs> find her in the house and be like, Pastor Mike said we had to find you when you wanted to be alone. Kunk, 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 kunk. Because we all know mom goes to the bathroom when she wants to be alone because it's the only place where you can have your privacy. Sorry, was that too transparent? You guys, think about this. Jesus allows the disciples to interrupt him. He allows the disciples to interrupt his fellowship with the Father in prayer. And he's gracious about it. He's not angry with them. He doesn't tell them, get out of here. I'm trying to get away from you guys. You smell like fish. He doesn't say that. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) You guys, conversation with God, spending time with the Lord, doesn't make us irritable towards people. It makes us gracious towards them. If you're spending more time in prayer, we ought to be more gracious even when we're interrupted, even when, how dare they, people thwart our precious plans. And oh, I have so many precious plans. You guys, conversation with God prepares us for conversations with other people. And true fellowship with God is never selfish. selfish. It's willing to be interrupted when people need help. Seek out the quiet time. Look for it. Cherish it. But you guys, this was so convicting for me that we take very careful notice of how Jesus allows himself to be interrupted. Can I just speak to parents for a second? Even in your times with the Lord that are sacred, allow your children to interrupt you. Allow your kids to press into that. There's a time where it's obnoxious. I get that. But so many times we, we think that our time with God means that we don't have to be around people. It's equipping us to bless others. Our time with the Father equips us to be a blessing to others. And when you see how Jesus responds, he does it kindly, with grace. Notice he provides direction for them as well because they're like, everyone's looking for you. The idea is, let's go back to Capernaum. And Jesus is like, we're not going back. Here's what we're going to do. He says, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I've come. There's a powerful realization that comes with that final statement. This is why I've come. Because we so often mistake the attention of Jesus and we misunderstand his mission. I know this never happens to you guys, but it's happened to me where I've totally misread what God wanted to do. I had no idea what his plans were. I thought I knew. I tried to tell him how good my plans for him was. And he in his grace didn't do them. You guys, he above all other human beings looking at Christ Above all other human beings who have walked this earth, he shows us how to stay about the Father's business regardless of what people are expecting. 
regardless of what people's expectations are, he is kind and gracious towards them, but he also stays about the Father's business. He walks this perfectly balanced life of loving others and obeying the Father. It's almost like we should try to be just like Jesus. Like we want to be just like him because he walks this so perfectly. He reveals to his disciples that the goal is not to return to the excitement of Capernaum, but to rather visit the Kamopolis. That's the other villages, the unwalled cities that, you guys, these were the places that were considered less significant. These were the places that were not what Capernaum was. In the northern reaches of Galilee, Capernaum was a well-traveled city because it was on a very well-used road, traveling from the north down to Jerusalem. So Capernaum was kind of like a center of travel. You would hear news if you were in Capernaum. But the outlying cities around the Sea of Galilee, they weren't so well-traveled. And Jesus said, I didn't come just to stay here in the protected cities or the cities that are well-known. I've come to preach to the Kamopolis. I've come to preach to all, including those who are on the outside, including those who are marginalized. He cares about everyone that's there. He wants everyone to hear the good news of the gospel. He had come to reveal that the kingdom of God had come near. It was time to repent and believe. He was bringing a message of redemption. And it wasn't just for those who were in the right location. It was for all. And this gospel was to be preached everywhere. The passage that was read over us this morning that I reread from Isaiah 50, verse 4 says this, just to remind us, of the heart of Christ, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. Do you see how that's like an outline for what Jesus is doing? He awakens early. He spends time with the Father. And now he's going to sustain the weary with a word. Now he's going to go preach. And not just in Capernaum, but he's going to go to all the villages. Both in larger cities and smaller, he sustains the weary. If Jesus was dependent on receiving this word from the Father, how much more should we seek him in prayer so that we can be given the tongue of instruction so we can receive his strength to do the work that we're doing? Are we dependent on Christ? for what we are doing every single day. If you really want to take a look inside and really look at your life introspectively, your prayer life will reveal that to you. Our prayer life reveals to us how committed we are to honoring God in our daily actions. And if you're not feeling the conviction like I am right now, I don't know how to say it better. <laughs> like, Spirit, give me better words because I am so convicted over my ineffectiveness because of the lack of prayer. I don't think that our prayer lives are ever something that we should be satisfied with. That's like putting it on cruise control when it comes to your marriage or your friendships. You always have to keep investing. You always have to keep caring for people and making adjustments and listening and learning and, and growing in this way. We should never expect our prayer life to just be what it should be and hit autopilot. That's a good way to run into a mountain. You guys, we need to stay in this place of constantly assessing ourselves, saying, Lord, I need you. Well, Jesus moves on with the disciples from Capernaum. And let's read this next section. We'll close out this first chapter of Mark together. Verse 39 says this. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. 
Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. Verse 39 summarizes in a sentence a journey that took Jesus from Judea to the Decapolis to beyond the Jordan. Matthew's gospel reveals to us uh, prior to verse 40, Jesus saw crowds. He went up on a mountain and he sat down and he taught them. And the first thing he said to them was, blessed is the poor in spirit. Jesus, in this verse 39 section, gave the Sermon on the Mount there in the region of Galilee. And through all those travels, he was preaching and driving out demons. And this is why he had come. Not just why he had come to this region, but Jesus had come to preach the good news and because of his compassion, he was healing and he was driving out demons as well. His power was revealed through the overwhelming authority he had over spiritual forces and through the sincerity and righteousness of his preaching. Remember, as Jesus identifies the teaching of the scribes at the time by saying, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do in Matthew 23. And then we see prior to this section, still in Mark chapter 1, that they're astounded at his teaching in this region because he taught with authority, because it was the right words from a righteous man. Can you imagine living in a small town around a lake, insignificant, unwalled. Can you travel through and he would come and he would sit in the synagogue and would read to you in there that morning that Jesus walked in. Looking just like anybody else. He sits down at the chair where the teacher would sit and he opens the scriptures and he starts reading, but oh, this is very different. This is very different because the man who's reading the text is the one who wrote it. The one who's reading the text is God in human flesh. And the one who's reading the text has never sinned in his life. Gives you a little bit of a chill, doesn't it? That's for me. It's not cold in here, I don't think. Guys, it'd be so exciting. It'd be so exciting to see Jesus do this. Think about his posture, the words that he would say. They'd heard scribes week in and week out give them nothing to put in their net. And just like the story from before where Jesus looks at Peter and he says, why don't you throw your net in the water? Peter's like, we fished all night, Lord. We caught nothing. But because you say so, I'll throw the net in. And as Jesus teaches, those nets just start filling with fish. Jesus is filling the nets, the spiritual nets of these people, giving them the spiritual food they've been famished for as he preaches in these small synagogues. And it wasn't just for the metropolis. It wasn't just for the big cities. This is for the small cities. This is for the Kamopolis. 
This is for everyone. Matthew's account reveals that as Jesus is coming down off the mountain from preaching the Sermon on the Mount is the situation where this leprous man approaches him. He comes up to him after hearing the Sermon on the Mount, after hearing the preaching that Jesus has brought. He comes to him and he says on his knees, begging him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I'm willing, he told him, be made clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. This would be a physical transformation that would shock anyone who was standing nearby. Obvious. Absolutely obvious. Touching a feverish woman within Peter's home, his mother-in-law was within understanding. Touching a leper was very different. In fact, you could say culturally, this was beyond shocking that Jesus would touch him. Lepers were supposed to keep their distance and warn everyone that they were coming so that others wouldn't be defiled with their disease so that it wouldn't spread. You can read that in Leviticus 13. And yet this man comes to Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you can. Do you notice the difference of some of the statements that we make? He says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can. Not if you can and are willing, could you? He says, you can do this. What does that, what does that reveal to us? Faith. He knows what Jesus can do. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Notice this, not heal me. When you're talking about leprosy, you're not talking about healing. You're talking about cleansing. Language all throughout the Old Testament speaks of leprosy needing to be cleansed. He needs to be cleansed. We'll talk about why in just a second. This is a beautiful heart to come to Jesus with. Lord, if you're willing, you can. Church, we ought to pray this way. Lord, if you're willing, I know you can. How many times do we come in that way that James warns us against, double-minded doubting that the Lord's able to do anything? You're like, oh, I know he can do anything. Do you? Do I? I'm right there with you. Do I really believe he can do anything? If so, why is it so shocking to me when he works in powerful ways? Oh, I didn't think you would do that, Lord. He's like, really? Something from nothing, and you're shocked at this. You know, people talk about all the things in the Bible. It's just so unbelievable to me that, that a man could, could ra- rise up from the dead. Something from nothing is far harder, right? He spoke what you, all that you see into being. That's pretty incredible. I think God can handle the little issues of my life. And so it's more of an attitude of, if you are willing, you can. Lord, what is your will for my life? That requires an even further depth of faith. But make no mistake, we are safe to entrust ourselves to the willingness of God. You are 100% safe to entrust yourself to God's willingness. And here's why. Jesus is not willing that sinners would perish. God is not willing that sinners would perish in their sin. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's his willingness. 
First Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. Everyone is a lot of ones. Everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How willing is Jesus? How willing is he that people will give their lives to him and be saved from their sin? This is not a matter of him not being willing. He wants people to come to him. For every non-believer listening to me right now, if you're listening online, if you're listening into this room, come to Jesus. He's willing. He wants you. He is calling you to himself. Right now, Jesus is willing if you will come and say, I will put my trust in you. You are my Lord and Savior. Make Jesus Lord of your life. He is willing. He's willing to make you clean. Do you realize the importance of us being cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus? Leprosy gives us a picture of this. Jesus physically healed this leprous man. And in the next situation that we'll look at, in Mark chapter 2, he's going to heal, heal someone, a paralytic, who's suffering from a physical debilitating situation. And what's fascinating is it's no coincidence that this story of the leper comes first because it conditions our, heart, our hearts to receive the reality of what he's going to do for the paralytic. Because Jesus not only can heal our physical bodies, but he can forgive our sins. And that's where the cleansing comes into play. That's where Leviticus 13 is like a guide for us. And this will be on the screen for you because this is important for us to grasp, to know the Old Testament scriptures and how they teach us about the power of Jesus. Like sin, leprosy is deeper than sin. You can see that in Leviticus 13.3. Like sin, leprosy spreads. Like sin, it defiles and it isolates. And scary enough in Leviticus 13, 47 through 59, like sin, it renders things fit only for the fire. And that's why we need to come to Jesus and say, Lord, you can make me clean. You see, in this man's situation, he came to the Lord and said, if this is your will, let me say it right now. The reason I read those passages from Timothy and from Peter, is so that any person listening would know that he invites you to know him as Lord and Savior so that your sin can be cleansed away. If you have not received Christ, you're in worse shape than this leprous man, but you don't have to be. I beg you, come to Jesus with full assurance that he is both able and willing. He wants you. Here in Mark 1, this man is cleansed of his skin disease completely and instantly. As Jesus is moved with compassion out of the gospel accounts of this leprous man, this is the only time that's referred to that Jesus has compassion on him. It's part of the theme that Mark follows throughout his gospel account of Jesus being the servant savior. 
is that his compassion is constantly in play. He gives these little details. As a side note to the outline of Leviticus 13 used prior about a week, you guys, and read Leviticus 14. Um, it's a beautiful picture of redemption, and it's where Jesus directs this man to fulfill the requirements according to the law before the priest. The whole chapter is fascinating to look at through the eyes of redemption. Jesus says this to him. Notice this. We'll close with this section, beginning in verse 43. He sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go and show yourself to the priests and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news. With the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. He was out in a deserted place. They came to him from everywhere. This chapter ends with a warning. It ends with a warning, this beautiful story. A warning that reveals to us that this man, even though he believed Jesus to be capable and having been shown that he was willing, disobeys a direct order from the Lord. A strict order. It says he warned him sternly, don't tell anyone. Jesus wasn't kidding. I remember as a kid reading this and and, and thinking to myself, there's no way that this was the wrong thing to do. You know, there's no way that it was the wrong thing to do to, to go and share with people the amazing thing that the Lord did for you. Well, it is when he says to keep your mouth shut. Fascinating thing to think about. Maybe that's an adult perspective. But it's interesting to think about this. If the Lord has said, be quiet, we ought to be quiet. If the Lord has given us a strict instruction It's not up to me to look at it and say, well, there's got to be a way around this. It couldn't possibly be wrong. Yes, it is. It is 100% wrong to not obey the Lord. And Jesus did this for a reason. Maybe this guy was excited. I would be excited. I'm excited now, and I wasn't even a leper. Maybe he didn't see the point of keeping it to himself. It could be that he acted consistent with human nature. We understand this, right? Being told not to tell anyone about what happened to him made him even more anxious to do what? You know, he just, I gotta tell you something. Maybe he led into it subtly like, you know, I have this secret, but I just, I don't know how to tell you. Like, dude, what's up with your skin? You look good, right? You're like, yeah, I get to worship the Lord now. All right, I'll see you later. You know, instead of that, he's like, there's this guy. Oh man, he preached this sermon and then he healed me. He's right there. And Jesus is like, what did I just tell you? You guys, regardless of what he did or how he did it, what he did inhibited the work of Jesus in this region. It made it difficult for him. Church, are we paying attention? God does something in your life and gives you strict instructions to obey. Are we joining with the Lord's work? Or are we disobeying him and making it difficult for him to work? You guys, may our excitement over what Christ has done always work in cooperation with his will. It's great to be excited. It's great to be stoked about what the Lord's doing, but never apart from Scripture, always sourced in Scripture, always rooted in what the Bible has told us. Everything that we do to minister to others, everything that we do as a church ought to be rooted in Scripture. Because I don't want to in any way deviate, be disobedient, and inhibit the work of God in this community.
inhibit the work of God in your lives. We're supposed to be walking in obedience to him. It's fascinating to me that in this chapter, Jesus would not permit demons to speak. Right? He would silence them. We talked about that before, literally using FEMO, the word that says be muzzled. In other words, in our vernacular, shut your mouth and get out. Right? He would silence them. Isn't it fascinating that he doesn't look at us and say, FEMO, I'll take care of this. Instead, he puts his word into our mouths and calls us to be his instruments of grace. I don't ever want him to regret that. Of course he knows what I'm going to do. God knows my beginning and my end. But I want him to always find me walking in obedience, speaking the words that he has given me to speak, nothing more and nothing less. We're given opportunity as human beings that Christ has cleansed to reflect his character. Being radical enough, hopefully we understand that, radicalis, being rooted enough, to pray like him, willing to embrace the strength of God found in the deserted places, seeking the lost and unreached in places that are considered insignificant by the world, like those unwalled cities, being moved with compassion like him, being cleansed by him, and church, don't miss the ending, being obedient to him. This chapter, what an amazing way to kick off this gospel. Jesus does so much. We could go back and reteach this whole chapter and do it fresh. Talk about something different every time. Reread it this week. We'll begin chapter two next week. But I encourage you guys, spend time in the gospel of Mark. Dig into the scriptures. Look at Jesus. Look at every move he makes. Listen to every word he speaks. Remember, we want to keep him right in our focus through this whole study. There's lots of characters. There's lots of situations. And they're there, but they're all a backdrop to the King of Kings. They're all a backdrop to the servant Savior and what he's doing. Zone right into this. Just look right at him, gaze at him. Don't remove your gaze. As we go through this gospel, I hope we emerge from it closer to Jesus than we've ever been. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray together. Lord, it is for your glory that you do all that you do and that you created us even. You put us here to bring glory to your name. And Lord, I just want to thank you for this body of believers. God, it is a privilege to be a part of this church. As a member of this church, alongside these people, it is a privilege, it is not a right. It is not a right that I hold a position here that you've called me to, Lord. It's a privilege to do it. It's an honor and it's humbling. And Jesus, I pray that we would never approach your text, that I would never approach your word without an absolute awareness of my need for you. Lord, that as we go through these studies and as we even now are going to sing and praise you and worship you, Lord, that we would be aware of your presence here. God, you are here. Jesus, you're in the midst of your church. You're the head. And Lord, we just recognize that so many times we have lacked that discipline of prayer. I've lacked that discipline. Jesus, teach me to be disciplined like you. 
Lord, that as we look at the mission, what you've called us to do, that we wouldn't be swayed by people's expectations, but Lord, that we would do what you've called us to do. We would go in the way, Jesus, that you went, following the leadership of the Father and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would give us the work to do and that we would do it faithfully and that, Lord, we would see our county and the people around us cleansed. And Lord, as you continue to work in us, may you find us obedient to what you've told us to do, even if we don't understand it. Lord, so many times we don't understand And yet you've called us to obey. I don't need to understand. I need to trust you. Say, Lord, you can. You've saved me because you are willing. I'll do everything you ask of me. Lord, give us that kind of resolve. Would you strengthen your church? Lord, to be used by you for your glory and to enjoy fellowship with you, Lord, here and when you take us home. Lord, we can't wait for that day, but until then, find us doing your work obediently here, we ask in Jesus' name.